listening to the Autistic Tea Party Podcast. I'm Malia. And I'm Kat. And together, we will be your hosts as we explore some of the hottest topics in the autistic and neurodivergent communities at large. We'll be speaking with parents, therapists, experts, educators, and more to dig into the more nuanced discussions being had in and about the disabled community. So join us as we sip and spill the tea. This is the Autistic Tea Party Podcast. to bring you some of our greatest content yet. Join us this summer for 12 weeks of free and brilliant webinars every Wednesday starting June 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. When I tell you that you're not going to want to miss a single talk, I'm not saying that lightly. We've got therapists, educators, parenting experts, and more. So head to allteach.com now to see the lineup and get your tickets to the event. Lydia just said... Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to our live stream. Um, I'm going to introduce Shane. Lydia will be joining us uh, shortly, um, but Shane is, and Lydia have been talking and doing activism around the JRC um, for a really long time. Um, so we're so lucky that they are here to talk to uh, everyone about you know what they have um, you know, been doing around JRC activism for so long. So Shane, I'll let you introduce yourself and then we can have kind of like a, you know, more casual conversation about it, if that's okay. Sure thing. Um, my name is Shane Newmeyer. Um, and this is my cat, Aria, who also wanted to join. She has nothing to do with JRC, but she was very insistent on getting on camera. Um, I am an attorney and an advocate, um, a self-advocate, and um, I've been involved in disability justice activism since um, 2008, 2009, thereabouts, and specifically focusing on JRC for um, most, if not all, of that time. Um, so that is me and my background. Awesome. Um, so a lot of our, you know, feedback um Lydia hello this hi is, uh, this is my partner Lydia hey Lydia do you want to introduce yourself to everybody hey everyone this is Lydia they them pronouns I'm a youngish East Asian person with short black hair and glasses wearing a green shirt in front of a gray wall and a window with blinds Awesome. Lydia, we were just talking about just doing like kind of introductions um, and talking about how, um, you know, obviously we're all, you know, horrified um, by the reversal of the ban on the GED. Um, a lot of uh, the audience on TikTok um, maybe are hearing about some of this, maybe for the first time even. Um, and, you know, we've been doing like lots of people have been talking about this on TikTok. Um, but it would be really great if you all, since you've been in, in involved in this for so long, could talk a little bit about kind of the history of the work you've been doing around this um, to start. And then we can kind of um, answer uh, questions and such um, as they come up, if that's okay. Um, so how should we start? I'm sorry. I'm a little oh, bit okay. So how about, why don't you, if you could give like a summary of 
like how your work with the JRC started um, and maybe some of the, you know, let's just start there. Like, so how did you start talking about the JRC um, in the beginning? And then, you know, after that, I guess. I can go first if, if that's good. Yeah, go for it. So in about 2008, 2009, I was, I learned I was autistic, got involved in autistic advocacy uh, community. Um, and I ran across a link in somebody's um, forum signature of all things that mentioned electric shock of, of autistic children. And I went, oh, what, this has to be fake. And I clicked on it, and it was not fake. I um, quickly came across um, one of the big sources, which is the 2006 New York State Education Department report, 26 pages of pure horror. Um, this is where um, stories such as the um, use of shock for things like nagging and swearing and getting out of your seat comes from. It also um, mentions how people would be shocked for things like reacting to how other people were triggered by being shocked and how, for instance, they would basically put people in a no-win situation called a behavior um, rehearsal lesson where they would try to get a person to engage in a target behavior, such as eating something they're not supposed to eat. Um, and if they didn't do it, they'd get shocked. And if they did do it, they'd get shocked more. So, um, and that goes way back in JRC history. Allegedly, that's not done anymore. I side-eye the hell out of anything JRC does, says about them not doing this or that anymore, especially because one of their favorite hobbies is thumbing their nose at the law, um, even the, the ones that get upheld. Um, so to get back to kind of my background, I mostly I started reading everything I could find, telling anybody who would listen to me about this, as one does when a person is autistic with a special interest. And um, I started when I went to law school, I started working at Massachusetts organizations. One of the reasons I went to law school in Massachusetts was to work on this issue working at Disability Law Center, the Mental Health Legal Assistance uh, Committee. Um, I'm getting that name wrong, but uh, Advisory Committee, that's right. And uh, other New England disability orbs um, and have been more or less working on um, deinstitutionalization, anti-aversives and anti-institutional abuse in general work, especially at so-called behavioral modification or troubled teen facilities ever since. Lydia, do you want to um, talk a little bit about kind of how you started talking about JRC or when you started talking um, or protesting the JRC? It was actually around the same time as Shane did, I think a little bit later. I first remember learning about JRC as a site of torture and abuse for disabled people around 2009 from other activists in the New England chapter of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. I was actually in high school at the time, and that was the first time I'd really connected with other autistic adults who were demanding civil rights and social justice. And I learned about the JRC, I think at one of the ASAN chapter meetings, although I can't tell you exactly which one. 
Um, I do remember, however, that in discussion about JRC and activism against the abuses that take place there, that Shane's name was one of the first names to come up. And that was the first time that I remember really hearing about and learning about who Shane was. Um, and incidentally, that is not how we met each other, but that is how I uh, learned about Shane's work in that arena. Um, I was part of a series of of meetings that the ASAN New England chapter had with members of the Massachusetts legislature in which we were trying to support the passage of legislation at the state level that would have banned the use of the shocks and and similar forms of aversive intervention or punishment. And uh, in addition to that, we were also uh, creating and sharing resources online. Uh, we were hooked in with the Occupy JRC group and with CAFETI, the Community Alliance for Ethical Treatment of Youth that Shane had worked for. And um, those are the groups that had organized protests in Massachusetts and, uh, and in Washington, D.C. Um, related to the JRC. And ASAN New England leadership ended up being involved in, in partnering with those protests as well. I wasn't in chapter leadership, but I was a very active member um, of that chapter at the time. Um, I remember that whether we were in front of the state house um, at a number of rallies, Shane, I know that you were um, present for more than one of those actions, uh, or whether it was outside the JRC's building itself on Turnpike Road in Canton, or whether it was meeting with members of the legislature, we all had the same objective, which was how can we, number one, stop the shocks, and number two, end any other form of abuse, including the abuse of institutionalization itself. Um, a point that the late Mel Baggs repeatedly brought up when Z was alive in talking about the way that a lot of disabled advocates try to exceptionalize JRC as the only place where something awful happens. And while it may be the only place that we know of that uses the shock treatment specifically, the violence of the JRC goes far beyond the shocks. The institutionalization is violent. And so I remember a lot of our conversations at the time revolving around challenging other forms of aversives and restraint and seclusion and just the entire process of institutionalization. Yeah, I mean, that's just such a great point, Lydia, because I've been seeing a lot of kind of exceptionalization of the JRC and conversations about that. Um, talking about this as a kind of um, anomaly. And in a way, it is because of the use of the shock, but as you brought up, the use of aversives, the use of institutionalization, like writ large, um, is not um, is not at all exceptional. Um, so I would ahead. say, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, so I think the JRC is quasi-exceptional in a different way than just right. the shocks. The shocks are part of it, but I would not group JRC with, say, an average ABA facility. I wouldn't right. group it in the same category as a psych ward. Not to say that those settings are great. A lot of abuse happens in them, but I would put these more in the, categorization, the category of quote-unquote troubled teen facilities that mm -hmm. come from a background of and this is where things, uh, okay, the whole thing is weird, but once you go back to the roots of JRC and the troubled teen industry, a little bit, a bit distinct, but comes from this kind of background of, frankly, cults and in a nicer way, you could say utopian communities and ideas that were to some extent benign, I think less benign than their founder, uh, B.S. Skinner, in 
of one, uh, to give one example thought. But for instance, Matthew Israel, the founder of JRC, who is allegedly not involved anymore, I say allegedly because he was caught involved in the California facility, which he was not supposed to have done since the 80s. He was involved 30 years later. So he's allegedly out of the picture, but he was the founder. He ran a few utopian communities, quote unquote, in Boston, trying to establish a community based on the principles of operant behavioral conditioning. Turns out adults didn't want to have to live with him. So those one after the other fell apart three in a row. So what does he do? He goes and forms a program for children and adults with disabilities, often under guardianship or presumed completely incompetent otherwise. And so this background, it's not, you know, it's not the same as a lot of other institutions that are um, similar in the exact population they serve. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to kind of, um, sorry. Um, I want to kind of maybe um, pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about um, the kind of racial demographics of JRC um, and how that relates to kind of racialized violence. Um, maybe we could kind of talk, speak to that point a little bit um, about kind of how, how do people end up at the JRC and how is that related to systems of inequity in New York City and Massachusetts, et cetera. Do you want to go ahead, Jen? Um, I'm sorry, that was a very complex question. Can yeah, I'll break, break it down. It down. Yeah, so two questions. One, how do people end up at the JRC, right? Um, and then the second question is, how is that related to um, larger systems of inequity? So I will answer part one, especially since I have talked a lot. I will hand part two over to Lydia, especially since they um, can speak to this better than I can. So as far as how people end up there, a lot of times it's in, in people in New York City schools, um, the vast, vast majority of people, 70% come from New York State, and most of those are either there from um, special education um, or from um, often because they age out of the special education system, the uh, adult services system, there's a there's been cases where people have been referred there from Rikers Island and JRC has advertised at um, criminal justice conferences, so I've heard, but most of them are funded either through IDEA, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Funding, um, or um, Medicaid funding um, from New York. And what happens often is people are sent there as young adults, and when they age out, they're there from decades for decades later. This isn't unique to JRC, by the way. Uh, New York State has a problem of dumping disabled people sometimes for decades in out-of-state facilities. Another example is wooden services. And um, what was I going to say? There was about 50 people there from Massachusetts um, as well. Some of the long-term people, uh, mind you, are the people who they always haul out as exemplars. 
um, are not of the same demographics for the most part as the majority of people. And a lot of times, as was the case with Cheryl McCollins, the mom of uh, Andre McCollins, who, uh, if you Google JRC and see a video, it's probably going to be that one. It's the evidence we have of somebody being shocked at JRC. She didn't know the full extent of what was going on. And I think that it, based on other sources um, and how they actively have, for instance, hid evidence from doctors and parents, I think that is more often than what you see of people defending the use of shock and other forms of aversives on their children or siblings or adult um, wards in general. This is Lydia. When you ask about the underlying issues of equity or injustice that give rise to JRC's recruitment and collection of people to confine and incarcerate there, number one, we're dealing with ableism. And ableism as a system of oppression teaches us not just that disabled people and disability are bad, but that if disability is such a bad, awful thing, then anything you do to try to fix it becomes justifiable as a result. Anything you do to try to respond to it or control it, mitigate it or cure it becomes permissible. And unfortunately, the vast majority of people who raise disabled children are deeply indoctrinated with these beliefs about disability. And they're taught that in order to be good parents, right? Like the ones that are actually thinking, I want to love and take care of my child. To be a good parent, you have to be willing to put your child through every possible form of treatment. And if you don't do that, then you failed your child. Then you might even be abusing your child because you didn't try some treatment on them. And in the worst case scenarios, parents that were already thinking partially negatively or awfully, about their disabled child. They were annoyed by having a disabled child. They were disappointed by it. They were angry about having a disabled child. They take out the anger on the disabled child. They're already predisposed to be cruel to them. Hey, are you up on the counter behind there? I see you. There's a cat up there on the top of the counter or cabinets. Hello, hi. Which one is that? Oh my God, I just saw it. It's like... That's Aria. Hi, Aria. Um, really this is clearly a very autistic broadcast because I just instantly was distracted by sight of cat, just immediately. Um, I, I can't not be. I was like, there's a cat there. Oh my God, it's so cute though. <laughs> yeah. Um, right, so parents who are already predisposed to have particularly negative and frankly abusive views of their own child or even don't even need as much persuasion, right? It's just like, well, do this to control the child, do this to manage the child, enroll your child on this program or put your child in this institution so somebody else can take care of the kid and you don't have to worry about it anymore and it's not your problem anymore. And that's literally the dehumanizing way that even some teachers and social workers and doctors, right, will encourage parents to respond to their children. Oh, the cat has left. Um, um, so when JR sees a staff and leadership will respond to parents of disabled people, especially children and youth, but not exclusively, who are doing things that the parents find distressing, confusing, or upsetting, regardless of whether the actual thing that the disabled person is doing is distressing to the disabled person, which is a separate, usually totally not considered 
aspect, right? They're, they will tell the parents, well, you know, this is a last resort treatment. Your child might detach their retina. Your child might give themselves a concussion by banging their head into the wall. Your child might injure somebody else because they get so violent and aggressive. This treatment is the last resort treatment that will be effective to stop those things from happening. Why wouldn't you want to try it if it's a last resort treatment? I mean, it's better than ripping out your retina, right? And the vast majority of parents who aren't given information, right? Like Shane was talking about what their treatment actually is, what a regimen of intense behaviorism is actually like, will think, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't want my kid to suddenly give themselves a TBI and make themselves become blind when they weren't before. So I'll try anything. And then they will. And we know because we've talked to other people who've been at JRC and parents of people who've been at JRC that sometimes even if the parents decide or realize this is not a place where I want my child to be anymore, I no longer feel comfortable with this, JRC has filed for guardianship to take over the guardianship of the disabled people who are in JRC so that they can then continue to make medical decisions, including decide to subject people to the shock treatment and to other forms of aversives. Now, beyond that, going towards even broader systems of, of inequity as well, beyond individual and a personal ableism, right? Ableism in society teaches us that even if this sounds upsetting, and even if it would generally be a bad idea to do, there probably are some people who are so severely disabled that it really is the only last resort choice. And that's what ableism tries to teach us. And JRC preys on that to say, well, maybe that wouldn't make sense for the average kid with ADD or even the average person with schizophrenia or the average person with Down syndrome, but they must have the truly severe cases. And it, it might seem inhumane or uncomfortable, but maybe there's a reason for it. They must know what they're doing. And again, that's an ableism that devalues disabled people's lived experiences and assumes that there's a type of disability or a level of disability at which human rights don't matter anymore, at which being a person doesn't matter anymore. Now, JRC has also always operated within broader systems of oppression within this country as well, and it is not immune from or apart from them. JRC as an institution has always had a significant proportion of students who are Black or Latinx or both who are institutionalized within JRC. And as recent, the most recent statistics from the Department of Education, I think the numbers were that it was somewhere in the high 80s uh, percentage of the entire population that would be counted as school age that would be classified as Black or Latinx. They use the term Hispanic. So that could include white Latinx students as well as Latinx students of color. Um, we don't necessarily have that exact breakdown, as well as Black students, whether or not they're Black and Latinx or Black and not Latinx. Um, so we don't necessarily know the exact breakdown of that. Uh, but we do know that at least among the school age population, students who are negatively racialized comprise the vast overwhelming majority of people who are institutionalized there. And given that they have been exhibiting at juvenile justice system conferences, and we've heard that they take referrals from Rikers Island that Shane mentioned, that it's not surprising that the population of people at JRC sits at the nexus of disability and race. In the recent uh, article covering the court decision, the JRC representative tried to clarify in a very defensive sounding tone that only half of people currently receiving shock are students of color and half are white. And, you know, we read that and we're like, okay, that's not actually a defense to racially disparate and disproportionate policies. And it's also not uh, explaining why JRC has been particularly or more perniciously targeted 
students of color for institutionalization there. Um, but unfortunately, that piece of the conversation has largely been missing from most disability advocacy responses to and discussions of JRC, except primarily among disabled people of color. Thank you, Lydia. And they're also recruiting from low-income school districts. Um, I, I did, I have to go back to the research I did in 2017, but I was actually mapping which schools um, people were coming from and like the addresses where the families were living. And it was, um, it was damaged. I think a lot of it's coming, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, you know, District 75 is like a large uh, place where they're, you know, recruiting. Um, and that's where I used to teach. And, you know, they they advertise pretty heavily in those areas, at least from my recollection. Um, I wanted to, uh, so some of the things that you were talking about, maybe we could talk a little bit. People are wondering now, you know, what can they do to get involved? Um, and so, you know, right now, um, you know, I've been telling people to push for, you know, public statements from larger organizations um, to kind of pave the way for whatever legal or policy work is happening, you know, probably behind the scenes, right? Um, but is there anything um, that you can think of that, you know, the people that are watching now can do to get involved in a way that's going to have kind of maximum material benefit? Should I go, Olivia? Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you. All right, so Lydia and many other people might have a different perspective, and I have been wrong. I, for instance, one, didn't think that the Trump administration of all administrations was going to push the shock ban through, and two, didn't think that they were going to win. So take my thoughts on this with a grain of salt. But I don't think after this that FDA is going to ban. And so what their decision, the uh, appellate court decision was, was the FDA can't ban the shocks for purpose A and not purpose B. They, for instance, the ban didn't explicitly didn't cover uh, like shock devices for people trying to overcome addiction to smoking. Um, and I don't think that the FDA is going to go back and ban those devices too that are going to be used uh, presumably for consenting allegedly neurotypical adults. I, I think that we're gonna run into problems there. You know, some very clever policy want could figure out a way to kind of navigate that. That is not me. Hopefully there is somebody smarter than I am. I have been pushing this other idea for a while. And this is especially relevant if you live in Massachusetts or New York, the two biggest sites of sending people to JRC is urge agencies and the legislature to cut the funding for these programs. Um, you know, one of the, if, and talk to relatives and such, uh, and I think this is actually something you could probably get even your conservative uh, relatives, for instance, or conservative friends or whoever to actually get on board. Frame it as your ta tax dollars are being used to torture disabled kids. Um, they're spending uh, over $250,000 a year 
to send people to schools and warehouse them where they're being abused. Um, and I, I, it's not going to be an easy fight because JRC, as they always do, will send in the parents saying my kid would bang their head against the wall or attack people, etc. But I think that there's a chance uh, because if you took away the funding, especially from New York City, but even Massachusetts, 55 people gone from JRC in a day out of a population about five times that, that's a major blow for them. Um, and I would especially look in, if you're an attorney or other a legal professional in New York City uh, or New York State, there's a provision of the law that allows for taxpayer standing. So if we could get somebody to challenge the use of funds in an administrative proceeding and then get that into court, um, that would be um, a possible way. I don't think that it is a surefire. Uh, one other thing I've heard from a um, another attorney who has worked on this issue is right now JRC is considered a charity under Massachusetts law. Um, the Ma Massachusetts has the potential to strip it of its charity status, which would also affect its um, it's money, basically. So if you're in Massachusetts, especially, you might want to reach out to the state and say, hey, how is, as as the attorney I'm thinking of has said it, how is JRC comparable to the Red Cross, for instance, or um, any number of other what we think of as charitable agencies? Um, so going after their money in general might be the best possible solution also, it might be another. It, it might be worth giving it another shot in, at the federal level. Um, the last uh, time that was seriously taken up was in about 2010. Um, the landscape has changed for better and sometimes for very worse. Um, and I don't think it would hurt to give that another try. And uh, especially given uh, the court decision and say, hey, like the FDA has done its best, the, the Massachusetts legislature has done its best, and the Massachusetts regulatory agencies have tried and failed, you guys can take this on. And uh, again, I'm not going to be Pollyanna about it, but I think it's worth a shot. I wonder if also, like, I mean, you're, you know, we could talk about this more, but, you know, CASA is back, is reintroduced, um, Keeping All Students Safe Act. And I wonder if, you know, what the kind of trickle-down implications, if CASA goes through, will be for the JRC, because I don't know, legally, maybe, uh, Shane, you could speak to this, but is the GED considered a mechanical restraint under the law? If I remember correctly, there was another provision in CASA when it was first introduced that had a kind of catch-all of, you know, other degrading or painful aversive techniques were banned. That's going to be a better um, avenue, I think, uh, if that provision is still in there. I don't think that they could frame it as a mechanical restraint. JRC does engage in mechanical restraints. Don't get me wrong. They allegedly, again don't shock people while they're in mechanical restraints, but I side-eye that heavily. Um, but yeah, I think an 
Especially because it would strip KRC of the ability to claim that they're being specifically targeted, which has been one of its arguments over and over again of blah, blah, blah. This is a witch hunt. We're special target of this. Is it, you know, everywhere from KRC to Turnabout Ranch in Utah to um, any of these other kind of either wilderness programs or therapeutic boarding schools? quote unquote, Provo Canyon is another one that's been in the news because of Paris Hilton. If, if they can't make that argument if all these other facilities are also held to the same standard. So one, it would be good to hold all of these um, facilities responsible uh, and accountable and not allow them to do this. Um, enforcement is a different matter, but it's good to have it on the books as a tool. And two, JRC is deprived of one of its major talking points if it's just general um, law. At Wait, a national, sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. At a national level, especially, because at the state level, they can say, gee, like there's only so many programs who use aversives. Who are they targeting? But on a national level, there are unfortunately many more. Yeah, I think also maybe it would be helpful. Sorry, I'm getting any feedback. Um, it might be helpful for our listeners to explain what aversives are, um, like generally speaking, um, and where do they? Where else do we see aversives? I, you know, we mentioned the triple teen industry, but like, what is an aversive? How does it work? And how is it being used in education? Uh, lo- you know, loose translation of that word um, for disabled people. I actually want to, in explaining that, go back to the question you had asked a few minutes ago about what the next steps for FDA might be. Um, The FDA's original ban that they put out last year said that it was not meant to include the smoking cessation related, related electric shock devices, right? But the underlying principle of both what the JRC is doing and what someone who is a presumably consenting informed adult might be doing by subjecting themselves to a shock to try to stop themselves from smoking actually come down to the same principles of operant behavioral conditioning. And operant behavioral conditioning has to do with a psychological theory of behaviorism that you can incentivize a person to adopt a desired target behavior through use of targeted rewards And you can simultaneously or separately disincentivize a person from engaging, again, in a targeted, undesired behavior through the targeted use of punishment or negative reinforcement. And punishment could be, we'll take away your computer time, or it could be, I will electric shock you. Punishment could be, I am going to make you go to solitary confinement, or it could be, I'm going to hit you. Um, And... The basic way that I I tend to explain this, right, is that positive reinforcement, supposedly conditioning behavior through reward, might be every time you do this chore, you can have a piece of chocolate. And so the person would begin to associate completion of the chore with getting a piece of chocolate, the desired reward, which would encourage the person to start doing the chore more regularly, right? In theory, that's how it's supposed to work. 
and, simulta- and simultaneously, right, the idea of we want you to stop picking your nose. Every time you pick your nose, I'm going to squirt a bottle at you of, of water because it's an unpleasant stimulus. So you're going to associate picking your nose with getting squirted in the face with water. So you'll eventually stop doing it again, according to the theory, the more we squirt you in the face of water every time you pick your nose. Now, where this theory breaks down is number one, people are not fucking robots. That's not how most people work. Number two, some amount of reward or punishment, sure, works to varying degrees in people, but works can mean by traumatizing someone or by inducing someone to only want to do something for the sake of a reward. Now, if again, a person who is consenting and in control of the situation ask someone that they love to help support them in making or breaking a habit through the use of reward or quote unquote punishment, that's very different than someone having, than someone being subjected to a regimen of reward or punishment that they didn't consent to, that they had no say in, and that is targeting behaviors that they didn't have a say in deciding what should be targeted as behaviors to reinforce to happen or to punish for happening. And so the, the difference, right, between the type of devices that people might use to try to get themselves to quit smoking, if the person chose to do it themselves, they're informed of the risks of possibly using that device, is that they decided, I want to do this to myself because I'm not sure what else will work to get me to quit fucking smoking. So I want to give myself a little bit of a shot to try to prevent myself from the urge from acting on the urge to smoke. And that's not the method that I would personally choose if I were trying to stop doing something that I didn't want to do. But if someone else wants to do that for themselves, great, they can do that. What the JRC's device does, the device that was supposed to be targeted by this BAM, it's not used by the person. It's used by somebody else on you. And it's not supposed to be a little bit of a reminder that, oh, that was a little bit unpleasant. Maybe I shouldn't do this thing that I keep wanting to try to do. It's used explicitly just to inflict pain and fear. Like that's literally the point. There was an article from several years ago that mentioned uh, interviews with parents of someone who's been at the JRC for a long time. And the parent literally said, holding up the remote control, this has made him be human again. I think that was the pronoun. I might be mistaken, right? This has made my child be a human. Now all I have to do is hold it up and say, put on your seatbelt or like behave at the dinner table, right? Like the idea of this little device now has enabled me to control my child. And this was horrifying and sickening to read, right? Because it's literally saying, I have taught my child to fear me. I have taught my child to be afraid that I will subject them to an extreme amount of physical pain for the sake of their compliance. That's what that device is. So the principles of behavior and that underlying principle of what operant conditioning is can be reflected in so many different in so many different ways. There can be ways that someone might decide for themselves, I would like to try operant conditioning on myself with the help of one or people that I trust or by myself to try to do something about a habit that I want to try to make a habit or a habit I don't want to have anymore. Or it can be used to uphold extraordinarily abusive and violent modalities of so-called treatment. And it's not unique, right? Like you asked, to places like JRC. These principles are widespread and pervasive throughout our school systems, 
through our public benefits and welfare systems as a way to disincentivize people from applying for and receiving public assistance. They're used extensively throughout the social the social work and foster care system, the child and adult protective services systems. They're used extensively in the criminal legal system and probation and parole in so-called diversion programs and explicitly in places of confinement like jails and prisons. You can find these approaches to the use of aversives, that is to punishment in all of these places. We will we will teach you to not do the thing we want you to do by teaching you to associate it with punishment. That is, we're teaching you to fear being retaliated again for not complying or behaving. One, I mean, uh, it also exists down to the very institution of the family. Um, we are still a country that allows um, people to hit children or otherwise inflict pain on children for disobedience. Um, and as with so many things, if you call it discipline or spanking or to extend it, if you call it education or treatment, it suddenly doesn't become what it is, which is child battery. Um, if we want to really eliminate disabled, abuse of disabled people and people at large, we have to start down to that level. And there's a huge amount of resistance in our culture, at least, to the idea of children and disabled people being people unto themselves, not objects to be acted on, not extensions of their caregivers. And that's a level of dehumanization that feeds into the idea that people with disabilities and children and uh, people with um, people in any position of disadvantage are people and not to be controlled simply because they're dependent or thought to be lacking. I, I, I would add when we're talking about how we can then approach at least the JRC's use of the shock aversive, right? The FDA can and should act. It should ban all such devices that JRC is using. And that ban shouldn't have anything to do with the smoking cessation devices because they're a totally different type of device. Just because they might be used with some of the same very way back there underlying principles of conditioning doesn't mean they're remotely the same thing. One is something that somebody uses for themselves, right, where they're in control, and the other is used as an instrument of pain and fear to control somebody else. And again, like Shane just pointed out, right, whether that's happening within the confines of the family as a unit or at the level of an entire institution, that is torture. I've written, you know, extensively about the way that the ABA kind of lobby uses language and intentionally creates confusion um, which uh, bringing back uh, back to a point that Shane made earlier is a very cult-like tactic, right? So when we make a word mean something completely different that has a common meaning, we create this kind of, well, you don't understand that, you know, punishment isn't the thing, it's the effect on the graph, right? So they make it, all of these words mean something different. Um, and one of those words I want, uh, you know, I've talked about extensively is the word rights. Um, and so within, you know, ABAI puts out these position statements all the time about their positions about restraint and seclusion, about the use of aversives, about, you know, the right to an effective behavioral treatment, the right to an effective education. And, and all of those, they frame rights as the right to receive the most uh, effective treatment. And in their estimation, that is 
electroshock, use of aversives, um, behavioral operant conditioning, right? Um, and so when we talk about rights, they're actually using that same terminology to argue for what they're doing. So they're saying we are encroaching on these children's rights to receive treatment um, by saying that you can't electroshock them. And we know because every ABAI conference, there's always some panel by JRC about how their rights are being infringed on. Um, this year, there were something like 10 panels um, hosted by JRC staff and leadership. I documented all of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw like a few of them, but like every year they allow these people to come and talk about how their rights are being you know, infringed on because we're asking them to like literally not electroshock children. Um, and yep. otherwise, she, they made this argument even before the shock. And there was JRC before the shocks. The shocks were starting in the late 80s. But JRC has been around since 1971. And during that time, that initial period, they were doing things like breaking ammonia pills under somebody's nose. And I don't... If how many I don't know how many of you watching have cats, but if you've ever left the litter box too long and not cleaned it out and smelled that sharp smell, it, imagine that right under your nose in concentrated form, and how, not just how nasty, but how caustic that feeling is. They'd also put somebody in cold showers, and after the shots were used, they started having people wear these devices while showering. Um, so that's cool and good. They're allegedly not doing that again, but keyword being allegedly. allegedly. Um, but where was I going with this? Um, can you repeat the question? Um, we would, I, I didn't really have a question. I was just talking about the way that they use language. Um, oh, I mean, that is also a, I'm looking, that you might notice me thumbing through something. I'm looking at Roger, uh, Robert J. Liston's um, book on thought reform and the psychology of totalism, which has a lot of bearing on cults and other coercive environments. And one of, if I remember correctly, one of the aspects of it is like, using specialized terms it, um, that are basically uh, in words that mean specific things and redefining language as a means of control. I feel like I'm drawing on things I knew from eight years ago, but that's, a, that's what came to mind immediately. As far as the idea of this as a right, um, specifically, this is a one of the problems with framing the needs, interests, and rights of people with disabilities and dependent family members, children, and elders um, as extensions of their caregivers and basically what that person wants for you is what you want uh, because you should and because that person knows best, allegedly. Um, it, I, outside of JRC, I do civil commitments and I am trying to figure out a polite way to say to judges that mother knows best is not a legal standard. Um, that is not what we're going by, but even though that is not what it's for, not how it works, that's how a lot of people think. Um, and um, 
until we detach that those two things and see people in their own right, even when we don't understand them or we we they do need some kind of assistance or a lot of assistance, we're going to ha- keep playing whack-a-mole with these same kinds of systems just in slightly modified forms over time. Yeah, we see it in, you know, somebody brought up Kennedy Krieger in the comments, um, but I've seen behavior plans as recent as like five-ish years ago with misting still in it, which misting is their nice way of saying spraying lemon juice in people's eyes and mouth. Um and I, I've literally seen IEPs with it written right in it from schools, like out of district schools in New Jersey, um, because, you know, I do a lot of work with families specifically who are, you know, fighting back against abuse of their children in particularly these out of district schools, um, which is why, uh, you know, the idea of talk, you know, targeting the school districts, the sending districts um, and the funding stream, I feel like is a really worthwhile strategy to maybe kind of, um, you know, focus more on, um, because these schools, like in order to be approved out of district schools, they have to be approved by the DOE. Um, and then they're getting the sending districts money and to the tune of $250,000 a year. Um, I don't know if people realize how much, you know, an out of district special education school gets paid even for children who don't live there. Um, so I've seen kids sent to schools that are $200,000 and they go, are there, they don't even live there. <laughs> um, plus busing, plus an aid, plus, you know, and it, it, it racks up. So um, I think that's a really, um, so somebody said, we have a couple of minutes for questions. Um, what are the best next steps, steps, collection of steps, contact Massachusetts p- politicians to remove charity status? contact Massachusetts uh, politicians to make a law against it, push for the new FDA regulation, how to do that? Um, That's a lot of questions, Um, but I think maybe uh, we can kind of talk about that and then it might be something that needs more organization and planning before people act on it. Um, But thoughts? I think at the state level, the best thing that's going to happen is people from those states contacting their representatives or executive agencies or the executive government as a whole um, about this. Meanwhile, I think the on the federal level, it's worth another shot to get federal legislation. I know even though we've got the, the main guy who was an opponent of anti-aversive regulations uh, laws and JRC out of office, I think it's going to be harder to get Massachusetts to do anything about it and for that to stand up under court scrutiny, especially in Massachusetts, what with the court history there. So I would focus on, on the state level getting funding stripped and on the federal level, getting some kind of law passed and possibly a regulation passed if we can get the FDA to do anything again. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, just to throw in there, if people are looking for stuff to do, um, I feel like CASA could have an important precedent, um, at least, right, in kind of spreading the wealth <laughs> among all of these schools that are partaking in, maybe not that particular practice, but aversive practices. Um, in general. Um, so we're, we have like, go ahead, Lydia. I would add to CASA, right? One important thing that's not there now, the language of the bill does not explicitly outlaw averses in the most recent version that was introduced. It references the Department of Education's plan 
to reduce the use of aversive behavioral interventions, but it doesn't actually address aversives explicitly. And so we need to ask our members of Congress, especially those whose offices are already doing disability work, to amend CASA to include a ban on the use of aversive interventions. Um, so that's something very specific that folks can do. You can reach out to your members of Congress and your senators, especially if they serve on the House Education and Labor Committee, or they serve on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, the HELP Committee, that, that will have a lot more say in what goes into this bill, and ask them to include an amendment that would expand the bill's prohibitions to, to include aversive interventions. Thank you so much. Um, so we have like seven minutes. I don't want to keep you all all day, but I guess we could just maybe, if you have any closing thoughts or anything you want to add, and then we'll end the stream. And thank you both for doing this uh, on such short notice. I think it's been really helpful for everyone to you know learn from your experience on this. Um, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on closing thoughts, unfortunately. I'll let Lydia go first. This is Lydia. Shane, I think that what would be really helpful to hear, because I know that both of us have been part of this fight for a while, and also that there's people that have been part of this fight for longer than us, including people that have been in the fight for longer than we've been alive. Yes. People have been fighting against JRC for the last five fucking decades since it was first opened as BRI. But I know you and I have had a lot of private conversations about how hopeless it can feel and how overwhelming it can feel that like it seems like nothing has changed. And every time we try to get a win, that it doesn't end up happening. And I think, especially because you're one of the first people that I learned about working on JRC, it might be helpful for other people to hear from you about what keeps you going. How do you keep yourself going and staying in the fight? Um, that's not necessarily a good answer um, because usually it's just massive amounts of guilt. Um, and that's not always productive, especially when we're losing. Um, but I guess short of that or as a variation of that, it's just to remember like there, there are people still stuck there. And there are few people who are even consistently aware of it. It pops up every now and then, and then it goes away. And those people are still there living in, with it. And some of them have for decades. And like giving up is not an option because that will basically be giving up on those specific people. To take it away from the kind of big cause level, the issue, and remember that there is individual humans involved. I mean, I, I, I want to just, I, that resonates so much with me. And I, I think about that a lot, you know, especially when we're thinking about what our activism looks like um, and thinking about, you know, kids that are in that situation, literally as we speak, um, is that we have to kind of always think of the material. Um, and that we can get mired in these kind of conversations about philosophy, um, but always to go back to real human lives and experiences, which is um, always an important and kind of somber reminder of where activism has to be focused. 
Lydia, anything to add or you want to, we can kind of end it here. I think that's probably a good point for folks. My last comment is really just keep listening to and amplifying the voices of survivors, whether at the JRC um, or from other sites of institutionalization and incarceration. Um, Shane and I are not survivors of the JRC. We're disabled. We faced an enormous amount of ableism in different ways in our lives. We're not survivors of the types of abuse that happened there. Um, but there are a lot of folks who are who've been speaking out. And you can find their work and their narratives all across the internet. Jennifer Masumba has perhaps been the most prolific of the survivors of JRC who's written and spoken out against what it was like to be there and just how horribly violent it was. Um, but you can find links to videos, blog posts, and articles featuring stories from survivors um, on the JRC Living Archive. And we'll share that link with you. Amazing. Thank you all so much. And thank you for doing this and, and for your for your work on this and for sharing um, with everybody. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as we had making it. For more information and resources, please visit autech.com. That's A-U-T-E-A-C-H.com and join our mailing list to stay in the loop about updates and events. We look forward to bringing you a new episode next week. Until then, this has been the Autistic Tea Party.